Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. I first heard of our next guest when she was the assistant to well-known film composer Harry Gregson-Williams. With Harry, she contributed music to projects ranging from The Meg and The Equalizer 2 to Disney Nature's Penguins and Ridley Scott's Oscar-winning film The Martian. On her own, she's the composer for Lionsgate's Step Up High Water, the upcoming Disney doc episode of Marvel 616, directed by Gillian Jacobs, and she's also writing the second season of Spectrum slash Lionsgate show Manhunt Lone Wolf. I'm so excited to welcome this extraordinary violinist, composer, vocalist, multi-talented uh, composer <laughs> to the show, uh, and her name is Stephanie Economou. Hello. Hey there. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for that intro. You, I got to bring you every, everywhere with me now. Yeah. Yeah, your mom paid me a lot to write that intro. No. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. They have money set aside for these sorts of things. <laughs> uh, so the first question I have for you is, you're from Long Island, New York. This is true. And as a fellow New Yorker turned LA transplant, I'm curious what you think makes New York natives thrive in LA, or if that is the case. Oh, you know, I think New Yorkers thrive anywhere and everywhere, um, just because I think those are the kind of people we're bred to be. Um, I think, you know, there's like a sense of grounded reality and general self-deprecation that comes with being a New Yorker. And I think that's kind of an asset in Los Angeles, really anywhere and that, you know, just in adult life in general. Um, but yeah, I've definitely met several New Yorkers out here who who are thriving, certainly. Um, and maybe it's not a coincidence. I don't know. Cool. So did you discover like your your interest in music just like growing up? Yeah, I, you know, my older sister, um, who's a doctor, she's an OBGYN, she's not in music now, but she played viola when she was younger. And she taught me um, how to play violin when she started playing viola. So I kind of was introduced to that and exposed to that kind of music from a young age. And I just grew up through school. I was lucky because I grew up on Long Island, just fantastic public schools and uh, fantastic music and art programs. So I kind of just grew up in that sort of really you know, artistically cultivated atmosphere. So I played violin and piano growing up, and my high school actually had an incredible four-year, like, composition theory intensive program. So that's sort of when I started composing music. Um, And I was never sure if I wanted to do it professionally, but, uh, you know, when it came time to apply to colleges and stuff, I was highly academic, but I was kind of like, you know what, if I'm really this invested in music, I may as well just apply to a conservatory, figure it out, you know, just, like, go to that very crazy environment. And if I hate it, then i Give it my best shot. Um, but, you know, I ended up going to NEC and I absolutely loved it. Um, it was just such an awesome place to learn. And Boston was a great place to go to school. Um, so I felt like I was kind of set up when I was younger, um, especially in high school, for this sort of conservatory atmosphere, even though it was a public school on Long Island. So that's sort of how, yeah, I got introduced to all of that. My my high school teacher theory and composition teacher's name is Mr. Doyle, and he's still probably one of the most important teachers I ever had. Um, he just like totally made music fun and wonderful. And I think that's all, that's what we all, you know, hope for when we're we're growing up and learning. Yeah, I'm envious. My band experiences in high school are not that fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, music is generally speaking, like not fun to do sometimes. Um, but he, he sort of made the learning process and like ear training and all that stuff fun and brought in, you know, popular music and all, all that stuff that we hear all the time and implemented it into, you know, this sort of theoretical, um, under this theoretical umbrella, which was the best way to learn, I thought. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like growing up with the Suzuki violin books, it's definitely like a f- different education. But did you enjoy, it, it, it totally like, did you actually like actively want to like practice violin and like practice music before that? As- As I got, yeah, I definitely did. I mean, I started out on piano when I I think I was eight Mm -hmm. or something. um, And I was playing violin in school, but I was taking private piano lessons as well. And I liked, I I really didn't enjoy practicing piano at all. But I did like kind of just like making 
melodies and just writing shitty little pieces that, you know, young kids do um, on piano. I thought that was kind of fun. And then I sort of experimented on guitar like a tiny bit, but that was a terrible failure. Um, and But violin was always the kind of thing that I was drawn back to for some reason. Um, maybe it's because I had the influence of my sister a little bit who was playing viola. But I just felt like that's my main instrument. I just kind of took to that a little bit more. And I love the music. I love the repertoire. And just I had so many friends in orchestra. So it was it was kind of a blast just being able to to make music together all the time. It, it didn't feel like a chore. And, you know, at my high school as well, we all had um, like a concerto concert for the rise of the seniors and stuff like that. So there was a lot of motivation to like not make a fucking idiot of yourself, like when you're on stage performing in front of so many people. Um, so that was that was definitely awesome. And just having that rigorous influence around me at school was definitely what pushed me to, to get better and want to practice, which is a strange thing. Not so much on piano. I think my piano teacher despised me and fell asleep during my lessons because I just I just wouldn't practice that week. <laughs> she wasn't she wasn't psyched about it, but it was a different experience with my violin teacher. Gotcha. So I think you're you're really amazing hybrid composer, uh, which I think is part of why you, you did so well with Harry. But did you do a lot of like electronic music while you were in school or did you get into it a little later on? Um, I definitely dabbled a bit. Um, certainly nothing like what I did when I was working with Harry. But I did some kind of just more experimental electronic pieces when I was both at New England Conservatory and I did my master's at UCLA. And there was like a general encouragement to kind of just like go into that direction. So like as I was learning the DAW and just sort of playing around with these, these you know, sonic experiments, I sort of just kind of headed more into that direction because I felt like I was writing so much music for the stage. And then I kind of just opened up this other door for electronic music, which I found to be super fun. And I just loved messing with sound and and just seeing all sorts of, you know, different permutations I can make with one sound. And I remember at UCLA, I, I did a very embarrassing and ridiculous piece that was based around zipper noises, mm. mainly because I like went away for the weekend and then I came back and I realized this project for my music class was due the next day and I was unpacking my stuff and I unzipped my duffel bag and I was like, is that something? I don't know. Um, so I just did a bunch of scratch recordings and then just like pulled it into Digital Performer, which is what I was in then, um, and and just messed with it and like did a whole thing. And my teacher ended up like programming it on a concert later and it was just like the most absurd, silly piece of music, but it was it was pretty fun to throw together. We're putting it on a concert, so you had to have zippers live or? It wasn't live. It was just played back in a space. <laughs> and I just sat there with like a shit eating grin on my face the entire time because everyone was sitting there taking it so seriously, which was so kind, um, right. as, as most people do in new composers concerts. But um, it was it was kind of just funny knowing the genesis of, <laughs> of the piece from my perspective. Yeah, it must be an awkward thing just like trying to not die of laughter while everyone's I was, just... I was, yeah, really trying to hold it in. <laughs> sure. Have you experimented with zipper noises since on a film or TV thing? You know what? I haven't, but I really should whip out some luggage and just see what I can do. No, I think you got to go back to your roots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you were at UCLA, is that is that when you started like focusing on film music? No, actually, um, while I was at NEC... I um, I had a couple of buddies who I went to high school with who were filmmakers, and they were attending Emerson while I was at NEC, so right in the Boston area. And they hooked me up with like some short films that they were doing. They recommended me to some other directors that were doing short films. And I kind of just got into it that way. I just did a couple short films, and I was like, oh, I love this. I love the collaborative process. I love that, you know, it felt like the other end of the spectrum when it came to like writing concert music where I was, you know, sitting in a practice room all day just with my own thoughts, which I try not to be alone with my own thoughts for too long. Uh, I was, you know, writing these scores with them and it felt it felt just like a natural process. I loved the challenge. I loved it when they didn't like stuff because I was forced to try something out of my comfort zone. Um, and like after the first short film I scored, I was like, yeah, this feels like a right, the right thing, the right path to pursue. So I did a little bit of that. I dabbled in that while in my undergrad. And then I was like, you know, I should move out to L.A. if I really want to give this a proper go. Um, but I really have the balls to do it without like some sort of safety net. So I was like, oh, I kind of do want a master's degree. So let me go to UCLA where they do offer a degree in that. And then I can kind of just sort of build a network from there, make my contacts and like really learn like the nitty gritty of of how, how this kind of career operates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then 
I guess like what were the the big takeaways, I guess, while you were there in terms of like studying and like developing the craft? UCLA? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest takeaways were I, I essentially had a couple of classes, one of which was taught by Peter Golub, who is the head of the Sundance Composers Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a wonderful professor and he really was just like in the thick of it. And he knew people who were working in this industry and he brought in so many guests. And I felt that to be quite useful um, just for like widening and broadening my perspective of, OK, these are the different types of music. This is how this person has approached their career. Just because when you're trying to pursue this and you're starting out and you're still in school, it just feels like nobody's there to demystify the process because everybody's path is so completely different, right? Mm. So hearing from people who were well-established and hearing how they got their start and just sort of seeing how they went about and made their music was incredibly useful. And Peter definitely um, opened up that uh, sort of branch for us. And I had I took another class um, with she was actually a classmate of mine. She was uh, getting her doctorate or master's as well at the same time, Sally Chu. And she just gave us really practical applications and challenges and and assignments Um, like, okay, this week you're just going to write a song and produce everything and everything's going to be mocked up apart from the vocal. um, And you just got to make that sound good. Um, And she gave us like a a ton of scenes to rescore, just totally different stylistically, which was a really important challenge. Um, Just like things that you would face, you know, if you were in a real time job situation. So I felt like that was those two those two classes are the biggest takeaway for me as far as just kind of like wetting my palate and sort of figuring out okay this is this is these are useful tools to have and uh, be able to utilize as I kind of try and jump in and find employment. So that was great and it was a good two-year intensive program. I thought that was the perfect amount of time to be there and that's I actually met Harry at UCLA because he came to do a master class. So it's sort of, you know, just making those connections are really invaluable. Um, and, you know, he didn't hire me then, like, that day on the spot, but he remembered me, and then we came back, and, like, he did a whole, like, master class with us in his studio, and then, like, after that, he was like, well, I really need another set of hands, and he asked Peter Golub if I was available to come and work part-time while I was finishing my degree, so that I kind of owe the whole reason why I, I got in with Harry to UCLA, which is pretty wonderful, and I think that speaks to how wonderful their network is, and... Um, how they're just just really willing to offer their students, you know, everything they can. Yeah, I guess just like having a, a composing program in LA, that's probably the main that's reason why you need. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like why <laughs> USC and UCLA seem to do well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, a lot of like aspiring composers ask me about like the assistantship thing as a natural way to like progress your career, right? It seems like a lot of people think you go work for like a bigger composer, learn the process, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, hey, like there's too much work. I'll hand this gig off to sure. the assistant. Uh, yeah. Do you recommend the assistant life, or can you like talk about what what it was like, especially like when you started and like how the uh, the tasks kind of like progressed, maybe? Sure. Um, you know, the assistant route is not the only way, but it certainly is a way. Um, I I know a lot of people think it's like sometimes people think it's the only way in. It really isn't. Um, everything is what you make it make of it. But for me, obviously, I got a lot out of it. I think that has a lot to do with the fact that just Harry in general as a composer and a person is enormously generous and he's very much a teacher at heart. Like I think when you boil down, like you get rid of all the music and all that stuff, like he is such a teacher and he, he's been an incredible mentor to me for over six years now. And I, I don't know that most assistants really get that sort of grooming. Um, so I was one of the fortunate ones to be able to like to be offered an opportunity like that. Um, I think, you know, when I started out with him, like I mentioned, I was part time because I was finishing my degree and he had just come back from being on sabbatical. He took a sabbatical, um, went back to, to England and actually taught music and sports for a little bit at his alma mater. And then he came back. He came to UCLA. Just I think this was his first week back, gave that master class and he was rebuilding his team again. Uh, he before he left for sabbatical, he had a huge building on Venice Beach, huge studio with lots of um, employees and collaborators. And he kind of got rid of all of that. And when he came back, he wanted to just start from the ground up again. So he had one assistant that he had had hired who he met at Abbey Road. 
Um, his name is Paul Thomason, and he was his tech kind of studio guy, also a mu- brilliant music editor um, and composer in his own right. But he wasn't pursuing film music. Um, he was there and he was helping Harry with all the technical tasks. And when Harry had come back and asked for my availability, they were working on a bit of a challenging film called Black Hat, and they really needed an extra set of hands. So Harry just asked my availability. I started working part-time, and it was mostly kind of, you know, getting serial numbers for for plugins and sample libraries and organizing like a studio book. But like very, very quickly, it became like, okay, you sit in the back of the room and you watch me work. And everything became more creative. And Harry knew from the get-go that I was obviously a composer and he had heard my music and, you know, he knew what ultimately I was trying to achieve. So he essentially was 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 grooming me to be his composing assistant. Um, and the the day that I graduated from UCLA, he basically called me. He's like, "Okay, you're full time now." You know, he was he was very he was patient and very supportive about me getting my degree. But then it was like, "Okay, let's hit the ground running." You know. Um, so after a couple months of sort of just kind of learning the ropes and being a sponge and trying to absorb everything that I was I was seeing between Paul and Harry working, uh, Harry would be like, "You know, okay." W- why don't you do some of these fixes or we got a new picture turnover? Um, can you do these these edits in Cubase? And it was it started with little things like that. But the more that you do that stuff, obviously, the better that you get at it. And just being able to take a look at his sequences, pull it apart, study it, that was enormously valuable just to see kind of how he's, he's using the orchestra and how he's programming um, some of these synth elements and how he just likes things to be programmed was the biggest thing for me because um, mm-hmm. everyone's very particular about that. And, you know, the more responsibility he gave me, obviously, that was that was great for me. And I had to keep pro- proving myself. And I just essentially went in to work every day hoping not to fuck it up. Um, that was my mentality for the most part. And, you know, six years into the job, that was my mentality every day as well. That, that doesn't change. Um, but I think that... I got so much out of that assistantship because it was such a small atmosphere. So it was myself and Paul, and that was it for six years. So I think there is something to be said for it being such an intensive, like, petri dish artistic environment. That proved to be very challenging, obviously, because Harry's a very prolific composer in his own right. So there was, you know, more work than we knew what to do with, but... We definitely were a well-oiled machine after a couple of years, and I think we all just worked very well together, even though there were challenges along the way, obviously, when you're <laughs> working in such close quarters with the same people constantly every day. But I I wouldn't give it up for anything. I mean, I, I it's always so difficult when people ask me, you know, like, how do you get an assistantship? How do you do this? How do you do that? I, I don't really know what the best advice is for that other than to just – just be a really hard worker, be a self-starter, um, learn as much as humanly possible, um, do things when they're not asked of you. And above all, like it's very hard to give this advice because I think it's just it's it's a it's a weird, probably not useful thing to say. But I think a lot of the reason also why I got the job with Harry was about personality. I think he just liked me. I think like I made him chuckle a couple times, and that honestly like served he he was right we got along really well and that proved for a really nice working environment and we pushed each other and we fought but like there was there's a family element to that and i think for most composers when they're looking to hire an assistant it's less about like okay how great is your fantasy cue it's more so about you know can i get a beer with you and can we can we just have a decent time um and I think that's that's the biggest that's the best advice I can give for someone who really wants to do this. Uh, if you want to get hired by someone, but you know, not everybody's going to get along, so that's a tough thing. So I think you definitely have to have those sort of just life adult qualities, which are being very organized, being a self starter, like I said, not expecting everything out of an opportunity like so quickly. I do see a lot of younger composers who are assistants and they're they just want that crumb that you talked about like drop from the table so fast and like why why isn't it happening and there's there's a lot of patience that needs to go into it and ultimately you're being hired for a job by this composer to be their assistant not to you know be their little clone and and usurp them that's not really what this is about you're being paid to to be the best at being an assistant right and i think that's an important thing to to understand certainly and that's I, it, it's it's hard. 
it's hard to be patient, um, and it's really hard work, and you work long hours, and it's not a super sustainable job either because of those reasons. But I do, I do think that you got to be chill, and you got to be cool under pressure, and work your ass off, and and unfortunately, constantly have to prove yourself. That's just the way yeah. that goes. Well, getting along well is so important again because of all those reasons. Like if you are yeah. spending twenty hours one day right before going to a scoring stage, then yeah, yeah, you want someone who won't just like. Or like who you're cool with, but that's amazing. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anyone get a chuckle out of Harry. So yeah. <laughs> he he's he can be a chuckly guy for sure. Um, but you know, at the also at the end of the day, like like he's introducing his team. All of these composers are your team gets access to like directors, producers, editors, music editors, like all of, performers, all of these people, and that that expands your network as well. So you want your assistant to be able to like fit in with that and be extremely professional, but sort of like, you know, kind of relaxed and and like a bit of an entertainer sometimes even. Um, but also know when to take a back seat. It's like know how to read rooms and know how to how to take on stuff, but not overstep. It's it's a tricky balance, absolutely, but that's why you do need to sort of be this I hate to use the word chameleon, but you do have to um when you're an assistant, just on like a total personal level, like um just just you know, human qualities. And that has nothing to do with music at all, generally speaking. Um, but I do I do find that most composers, when they're looking to hire an assistant, that's sort of, those are sort of the things that they're looking for. The talent in the music is a given if you're looking to be a composing assistant. But the rest is, is you know, it can be hard to find the right balance for that person. Yeah. I think it's especially tricky too, like once you're done with school, because I feel like everyone who graduates has some level of just like a little bit of if not hunger, thirst, or whatever, just because yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's an uncertain time. It is, On yeah. top of that, I was reminded, too, that there's a lot of people like going to Berkeley or going to USC who who are foreign students who, uh, mm-hmm. who need that, who have that one-year time period to get hired, which yeah. I couldn't yeah, imagine no, if that was, yeah. <laughs> that's a huge, enormous added challenge to all of that, for sure. Uh, but anyways, so in terms of writing, uh, so you were you were doing other projects outside of just being an assistant too, and I guess Perry's great in that he he gave you time to to pursue your own things. I think you did Sundance while you were there too. I did, yeah. I left at a really inopportune time, which was in the middle of The Martian. Uh, so <laughs> he probably still holds that against me to this day. But no, he was so enormously supportive. He's like, "This is a life changing opportunity. You have to go. There's no question." Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was, a, he was, um, one of the mentors there as well. So I got to see him for a little bit and he didn't drag me into any of the work stuff, which was very kind of him. Uh, he just sort of let me kind of do my thing up there, which was great. Harry's always been enormously supportive and a huge champion of me doing my own work. I, I have to say I didn't probably for the first three years, I really didn't do my own gigs mainly because I was really focusing on everything for him. And that's always my priority because he's hired me to do this job, like I mentioned. So I wanted to make sure I was able to to do that before I was taking on other opportunities. Truth be told, like, I was still right out of school. I wasn't really getting any opportunities. You know, I think I did a short film and a feature that had 15 minutes of music. Like, it was very light. But, you know, as as the years went on, Harry definitely pushed some stuff my way, which was really awesome of him. Um, and... From Sundance, I met my agent, John Clark, at Kraft Engel, and he we sort of just started a relationship um, and kind of just got those wheels turning, which meant just getting some executives to look at my music. And it's a long process to be able to actually, until you actually kind of get an opportunity from that. But um, I think all those things happening concurrently, so me continuing my work with Harry and then sort of my agent, you know, um, pounding the pavement a bit while I was still doing my work there was really useful. Um, so I got I got Step Up High Water um, a couple years back. Um, and I know you spoke to Russell Zeker recently. So he was he was a large part of why I, I got that gig. I just kind of went in with a meeting to, to say what's up and um, just introduce myself. And this kind of came across his plate, the second season of Step Up. And he's like, do you want to do it? And um, that was kind of out of left field a bit, but I went in for a meeting with the showrunner, Holly Sorensen, and Sam Hilscher, who's another executive at Lionsgate. And, you know, I sent them a reel, but I was like, I don't have anything that remotely resembles what you might need for this. And they had the songs covered, so it wasn't like I was going to be writing any songs. You know, they had like Timbaland and Neo was doing. Yeah. Matt Head does uh, a great were, job on that, that, too. And Matt Head, yeah, exactly. So all that stuff was like, well, the bases were well covered with that. So the score kind of had to just reflect 
the dramatic moments, the emotional moments, um, some of the more light moments, which which was which was fun. And I definitely did stuff that I never thought that I would do. And I did dabble in some of these different styles, which was great. And then, you know, after Step Up, I was able to kind of basically what happened was I would work all day with Harry and then, you know, seven o'clock would roll around and then I would switch over to to Step Up essentially for that was did, that was for like three months or so. Maybe I did that. Um, but Step Up, you know, it wasn't a ton of score, so it was very manageable. And then after that, I someone that Harry had worked with before, Michael Dinner, had a show called Manhunt, the season two of Manhunt, Deadly Games. And he asked Harry if he wanted to do it. And we were also doing Mulan concurrently. So that was obviously very um, demanding. So Harry goes, well, why don't we just keep it in-house? Why don't we do it together? So that's what ended up happening. And and Michael Dinner, so awesome, such a great guy. And he went for it. And we we just did that and cranked out 10 episodes. And that was much heavier music-wise. So it was it was getting a little crazy towards the end, uh, like towards the end of the 10 episodes, and then also approaching scoring for Mulan. So there was there was a balance issue there for sure, as far as, you know, sleeping, eating, taking care of my human form and <laughs> just working all the time. But it was it was wonderful because it was such a great opportunity and Meeting all the people on their end was fantastic as well. So it was it was great. It was hard. But I definitely knew that if I was able to have this, you know, freelance life working alongside my my work with Harry, that maybe, you know, when I was ready to kind of fly the fly the nest with Harry, that I would be a little bit more, have a bit more of a footing. And luckily he was so always so supportive of that. So now I've been freelance for three, four months now, and I have a show and I have other things coming. So I think it worked out for me. But for most people, I don't think that would work out because I don't think that a lot of people, their employers would be as cool with that and using the room to do your own work when maybe, you know, it's just, it's it's a hard thing to strike. I tried my best to just always make Harry the priority. And I think that's what you have to do. Um, and you just got to, you got to just burn it out. That's, that's all. These are the years to do that. I think when you're kind of young and alive and, and an assistant, you just got to do everything you possibly can. Right. I mean, I think it's happening more and more though, that like, I know like Ludwig Gorenson, when we started with Teddy Shapiro, like he was doing community, I think exactly kind of like you know, after 7 PM to like mm-hmm. 7 AM and then 8 AM yeah. to <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's the way it goes. And Harry's Harry's always been super understanding about just looking at me and being like, you're about to fall over. You need to take a day off. You know, (laughs) like he was always he was always good about that. Or he'd come in on a Friday and be like, don't don't come in. He's like, just just take it, take it off. Although I I wanted to be like, no, I can't do that. I have 20 minutes of music to write this weekend. (laughs) You know, but it was just he understood that he understood how important that was because he didn't want me to burn out because we had so much going on. And and, you know, I I, I did burn out at one point, but um, luckily it was the the timing was fine for it. I mean, the timing is never fine, but it was sort of, you know, not in crunch time, certainly. But uh, yeah, I'm very lucky that I was able to be fostered in an environment like that with Harry, where I was encouraged to just do as much as I can. And he he was always looking for that opportunity to, to share with me the co-compose thing. So we did mm-hmm. that on Manhunt, which was really fantastic. Um, and he always does that for people who he's worked with. He always looks for a way to kind of continue that collaboration, which is really, really excellent. And all of his previous assistants, I think it, it shows, you know, how, how they were brought up. We were all just kind of raised under Harry and He's one of the most fantastic composers out there and super prolific, and there's just so much to learn from him. Right. If you don't mind me asking about the burnout, because I think a lot of composers do have that, though, where it's just like, yeah, you know, after weeks of constant revisions or whatever, uh, did you learn a lot from this burnout? And, like, how would you approach, like, not getting into a situation like that in the future? Um, That's a very excellent question. I don't know if it was avoidable, given just how much work I was doing. I'm actually surprised I made it through what I needed to make through. I think that's just we're all familiar with that adrenaline that we kind of have, and we could be on our really on our last legs and still push through for for months and months. So, I mean, I was working two full time jobs essentially, and that's kind of why that happened. But ultimately, I burned out because I was also doing my own stuff. Mm. And I think I think Harry was sort of like, well, I didn't cause this burnout, you know, and like now you're you're having to take off this time. But I t- completely understand. And you just got to take care of yourself. That's always been his thing. 
I, I don't know. I think we're all at the whim of these crazy schedules for these projects. And as much as we all want to believe that, oh, okay, as soon as I finish this one, I'll just take a breather for a couple weeks. It never happens that way, ever. Schedules are so messy. There's always overlap. Uh, it's so demanding. There's rarely, yeah, I, I think if you're freelance, then you have a lot more opportunity to sort of make your schedule what you will and try and carve out these moments where you're just not staring at a screen all day. But then again, like people have families and they have other things that they need to prioritize at the same time. So I think you just really need to, as much as you can, just listen to your body. Um, if you can take an afternoon or an evening off, just just do it. I mean, you'll get it done. You will get it done. Like, everybody knows themselves. So if you feel like you're really, you know, running low and you can't do it anymore, don't hesitate to reach out for help because those are the moments to really do it. As much as we don't want to and we all want to usually do a lot of stuff ourselves, not every composer, but I think a lot of us do. I think it's important to recognize where our boundaries are. And so often we don't realize <laughs> how close we are to to kind of losing it until it's too late. <laughs> so that's why I say it's, it can be somewhat unavoidable. But I've always like made it to the end. I've always kind of kind of gotten there. But prioritize your health. I, I I can't stress that enough, especially for younger people coming into this into this industry who feel like they have to constantly be doing something all the time, constantly networking, like in their off time, going to panels and this and that. I just think people need to be a little bit kinder to themselves. We all work so hard. Uh, I think you know if you're not working hard enough, because I just think you do. But I, I think we need to be kinder to ourselves and not get so down or feel so guilty when oh, I decided to take this weekend off, but I shouldn't have. It's like you'll make up for it, but you can't, you know, you can't just like regain rest that you've lost. It's it's tough. It's tough to just catch up again. You know what I mean? Right. Like I still I still feel like in a way I'm catching up from the two years that we spent on Mulan. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. And it's very something that people don't talk about too much either is it's so creatively draining. Um you know, this is a job, so sometimes I don't like to talk so much about, like, oh, I get to be creative every day. Sometimes I fucking hate being creative every day. I really, I really do. And sometimes the work also isn't creative. And sometimes I kind of enjoy that part of the work, too. Uh, but, you know, I know some people just always want to be making music, and that's so fantastic. For me, I need to, I need to, pull, like, I, I, I need to pull the plug a lot, a lot of the time. I don't like listening to music in my off time too much. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of just feel inundated and oversaturated with music sometimes that I just need to take a moment, like, take, take a day to, to relax and not worry about that. I'm never going to be that person who just needs to constantly be making music, even though I do, because inevitably I have to, because it's my job, which is wonderful. Yeah. And I do get a lot of pride out of it sometimes. But, you know, the constant barrage of needing to be creative is it can be it can be a lot. Yeah. It can be quite draining. And I don't think maybe I'm the only one. Maybe that's why nobody talks about it. But it can be, you know, it can be a challenge, I, I have to say, to it's not so much coming in every day and needing to be creative that is is so hard because I think once you do it for long enough, you you have your methods and you have your tools that you you gravitate towards to just get stuff done because, you know, when you have experience, you, you can lean on that. But some days I'm just like, I don't want to fucking hear a note of music. You know, I just I just don't want to, even if it's once every four months. <laughs> for me, it was a thing where I got so tired working on TV of hearing a synth pulse. And then yeah. for whatever reason that week, it just like got to my head and I couldn't do yep. anything that was just pulsing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just those things. Yeah, yeah, they get to you. They really do. It's like, and then I listen to some TV music sometimes. I'm like, if I hear one more boat symbol, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. I die. <laughs> boat symbol into a cut too. It's not into, just. Always, yeah, always. Yeah. But there, there are always those things. And we, I think we all try to, to, to stay away from those. But mm. I, I completely understand there's always a straw that breaks the camel's back. And you're like, I'm, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use this delay again in my entire life because I've used it too much or, you know, sorry, own boys, <laughs> I got to retire that. <laughs> you know, there's just certain things that we just, whatever, well, we get pushed over the edge. When you did like listening to music, what, what did you listen to? And like, what, what were the um, like bands or, or composers who, who inspired you? That's a great question. Um, I, I'm one of those people who still listens to all the same music that I listened to in high school. Um, and I, I definitely love classic rock so much. Um, uh, Pink Floyd's probably my favorite band. I love um, Fleetwood Mac. Yes. Uh, 
And then, like, you know, sometimes I just listen to System of a Down was like one of, you know, some of my favorite music that I listened to in high school. Still love Blink-182. I oh, mean, I'm not going to feel ashamed. Who do- I mean, don't let's not be silly now. Well, have you ever been to uh, Emo Night in L.A.? I have not. You've not yet? I'm okay. terrified. We'll have, to, we'll have to go at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm incredibly interested, but simultaneously terrified by what that could possibly bring. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it leaned into those bands and like Jeff Buckley, just sort of all over the place. And, you know, I got to be honest, like I played so much classical music growing up that I sort of don't listen to it as much anymore. I have some like favorites, I guess, that I continue to listen to. But it's mostly just that stuff, like some classic rock and just things that I I, I just loved growing up because that it just gives it that feeling and that yeah. sense of nostalgia and it just relaxes my head and I know the music so well that I think it's also I don't have to I could just enjoy it which can be can be tough to do sometimes yeah it's also nice just having a varied collection of different interests musically yeah exactly um so in terms of well we talked about wrestle earlier um I was curious like how useful do you think like a relationship with a music exec is earlier in your career versus like establishing relationships with like the creators like producers directors I find that it's very, very difficult to get to directors in general. So I think um, meeting these music department executives is super crucial when you're starting out. Just getting an intro to them is great because they have so many things coming across their desk every single day of varied budgets, like varied needs, you know, and you want to stay fresh in those people's minds because that's exactly what happened with me on Step Up. I got I got sort of lucky where I think Step Up, they were just looking for a new composer for the second season and it was just fresh in his mind and I had just met him and he's like, oh, maybe this will work, you know. He, after our meeting, I remember Russell said, he was like, oh, this was awesome. I, I love chatting with you. You know, we'll probably never work on anything because it's just like so rare that something, you know, comes across and then it all works out and then we get to work together. And then, you know, two or three days later, he's calling my agent and just asking if I was available for it. So sometimes those pieces just sort of fall into place. Um, and these are the people that do have those that influence over composer hires. So I think it's it's very it's really imperative for younger emerging composers to just get some face time with those people. And I have found that all of those people are so receptive to meeting younger composers and just offering a little bit of guidance. Um, I was part of the Universal um, Composers Diversity Initiative, uh, where we hung out with them for a couple years, and their music department is wonderful as well. So they, you know, have pitched me on projects. They know my work and my music now, and those are just so invaluable. Those relationships, uh, developing, developing those, you know, collaborative working relationships, because they'll once you're in the in that kind of family, you're you're there for a long time, and you're always being considered. As far as the, I honestly the directors thing. I I did I did do the Sundance Composers Lab and that was very director composer um that was the emphasis there for that collaboration. I I got to say like I don't, you know, I loved the director I worked with there, Marielle Rivas. She was incredible and I love her work, but I haven't met any other directors that I've worked with from Sundance. Um I've only ever gotten hired through music department executives mostly. So that's that's just my personal experience. I know a lot of people didn't have that experience. A lot of people who went to Sundance still work with the directors they met there. Um, but for me, you know, I think if you have someone who's willing to vouch for you and say like, oh, why don't you come just meet Russell Zeker for an afternoon, just 20 minutes, you know, stop by the office. I think that's so important. But you do have to have someone who's willing to set that up for you and vouch for you. I had my agent do that. Um, so... I would always recommend people to go that route if you can, if you can find a way in um, to, you know, not just like hang out at the Lionsgate office, but, you know, just just find find a way to to meet those people uh, because they they do they do have the power to recommend that. If if there's not a director or showrunner coming in who already has a composer in mind, they're, they're still going to throw other composers at them. They're not just going to be like, OK, we'll immediately go after this one person. Like they always want to try and work with their people again. So I th- I think that's that's been super useful for me in my career thus far. Amazing. And just on that um, note about the Universal Composers, sorry, I might get this right. Universal Talent Global, or it's the Global Talent Development Inclusion That's Program. It. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the program was, if I'm not mistaken, last time 60% uh, female composers, and it seems mm-hmm. like Amy Doherty and a lot of, uh, actually, I guess everyone from the program seems to have enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, 
In terms of uh, you being on the board of the Alliance of Women Film Composers, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about just like what the industry or, or your industry experience as a female composer and even just like in post-production, do you see a lot of female people, like whether it's editors or has that increased in the last six years? I definitely feel like I've seen a lot of editors and assistant editors, a lot of showrunners, um, coordinators, a lot of women in post. Absolutely. I can't really speak to the production side of it because I'm just not around for that. But I, I do see a lot of that. Um, definitely seeing a lot more female showrunners, lots of uh, female producers and executives, for sure, which is wonderful. Uh, composers, it's, I got to say, I mean, I haven't been in this industry for that long. There are so many women who have, you know, been trailblazers in this for forever. But from what I have seen, it's been an incredible, like, evolution for the past couple of years, just with I'm seeing a lot more women getting opportunities that they hadn't before. And I think that is due to a lot of studios putting more impetus and self-awareness on needing to hire women because they represent less than 3% of these, you know, bigger projects that are being scored. So I do chalk it up to a lot of people just understanding the statistic and understanding how just dire and severe the situation is. And I do think a lot of women weren't being hired simply because people were hiring those who they'd worked with before. And those are mostly men. And that's just the way it goes, white men mostly. And I think just having this new wave of understanding and awareness of it has opened up a lot more doors, which is fantastic. And a lot more bigger composers, uh, male composers, taking female composers under their wing and sort of being like, let's do this opportunity together and using their platform for good, which is fantastic. I, with the Alliance for Women Film Composers, I just started a mentorship program along with Ronit Kirchman and Nami Melumad. And we thought that was really imperative because a lot of these opportunities do come from mentorships, myself, you know, included because of Harry. So we're really passionate about just getting more women into those positions where they can have FaceTime with composers and prove themselves and just like sort of develop a working relationship so that they're thought of more, you know? It's just like, you got to shove these people in, you know, just like make it obvious. Like, here I am. I have just as much talent. What are you doing? More talent oftentimes. <laughs> um, and that's kind of why we created that. I certainly see a lot of my female colleagues doing incredible high-profile projects, Amy Doherty certainly being one of them, Nami being another. Uh, she just scored an American Pickle, which was such a fantastic score. And yeah. I think the more visibility that's gained. And if we keep with this momentum, I think that's it's going to completely reshape the industry as it needs to, because it's so, you know, far beyond inexcusable that we're still talking about this in, in 2020, um, that we even have to have females highlighted in composers concerts. You know, just the, the fact that that even needs to be a thought is so silly because there are so many brilliantly talented female composers. Um, so, so yeah, I see a change. I certainly see a change. Um, I see a lot more projects coming through from not even just female directors, but many female directors who only want to hire female composers, which is fantastic. Um, you know, it's like you want to hire a female DP, you want to do all of these other people part of your production, and then sometimes it gets to post-production and that sort of wanes, but I haven't been seeing that at all. Lots of female directors only, only looking at female composers, not even entertaining anything else. Which is which is pretty great because that's how you get those opportunities and scoop them up and prove yourself. Mm -hmm. So I certainly see that change happening. Yeah. How do you feel about? Um, this is the thing I've talked to like Amanda Jones and Chris Bowers about, which is like being a person of color, like or like in their cases, like this. Someone says like we're looking for a black composer. It's like, well, what does that mean yeah. musically? Yeah. What do you think about like if you get a pitch for, uh, from Craft Angle and it's like, hey, they're looking for a female composer? I I don't. I just say, okay. Um, you know, I think when people say they're looking for a female composer, there's there's no identifier to female music. That's not a thing. There's no identifier to black music. You know, that's that's not necessarily a thing. I mean, if you're talking about stylistically, that's something else. But as far as voice, compositional voice, that's that's not a thing. So it's if I if I get something from Craft Angle and they say they're looking for a female composer, I'm like, great. What's the film? What do they need for music? You know, that's 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 all. Uh, how do I craft a reel to to really try and capture and convince them that I'm the right person for the job? There there's a lot of that, but I don't see that as so much as being like they want me because I mean they want me because I'm a woman because they want to offer that opportunity, and that's the way that I look at that, and I find that to only be positive. Gotcha. 
Cool. Uh, well, if it's all right with you, I think we're going to go into the last segment for the podcast, which is called Tech Talk, a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> okay, I love it. <laughs> cool. Uh, I'll start off easy with uh, DAW. I use Cubase uh, to write in. And I do most things like at Harry's, we monitor through Pro Tools, but here I kind of just use it for playing back picture um, and just organizing my stems and sending that off to the dub stage. Cool. Uh, orchestral samples? Oh, Christ. How many hours do you have? I mean, <laughs> that's a tricky question. Uh, oh, I'm actually going to probably choose to not talk so much about that because I feel like m- most people only talk about that. But um there's so much good shit out there. I don't know what to say. Like it, you can you can make really cheap libraries sound great if you're a great programmer, um, and you can make really expensive libraries sound shitty if you're not such a great programmer. So there's a lot to be done, um, and the the breadth of of options are insane nowadays. There's just there's there's everything you could possibly want. Really, it's it's insane. There's so much to be done. There's no excuse for mockups not sounding. Fantastic. That's all I have to say about that. Cool. Fair enough. Uh, how about Omnisphere? <laughs> Super useful for certain things. Super useful. Uh, and yeah, only use it for very specific things, though. <laughs> nice. Only got a couple left here. Uh, we're crushing through them. Uh, oh, Fader Bank. I don't even know what that is. Oh, sorry. Do you have one, one of those PV Fader things? I have a, yeah, I have, a, I have a PV. Yeah. Yeah. I have a fader box, yes. <laughs> fader bank, okay, yeah. Sorry, I think that's I what thought- they call the, um, what's that <laughs> thought- like, giant one that everyone at Remote uses? It's like $1,000, the, uh, oh, I'm blanking now. It's been so long. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. I, they, yeah, they have they have some big ones. We we had like a motor mix that we used for a long time, not for MIDI programming, but for for other reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I have an artist mix over here, which I don't know if anybody's using that for, for programming purposes, but I just use that for like operating other stuff. I thought Fader Bank, you meant like it was like a VST that I just didn't know about. I'm like. <laughs> it is too, I'm sure. We just don't know about it. <laughs> Generic name, yeah. Fader Bank by Spitfire, recorded at Air Studio. Yeah, it's coming out tomorrow. Unveiled yeah. tomorrow. Uh, legendary product that would change the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kidding, Spitfire, if you're listening. Welcome, <laughs> Miriam. <laughs> uh, cool. And then keyboard. Um, I use a Dubfer LMK2 Plus. Uh, it's great. It's what I used at Harry's. Um, and yeah, I think that's a pretty common, pretty common choice. Mm-hmm. For but sure. Love it. I'm used to it. Sweet. Well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. Do you want to tell the people <laughs> what you've got uh, going on then in terms of other projects or... Sure. I'll talk about my fader bank more. Um, Yes. (laughs) uh, So Step Up is going into season three. Obviously, it's a little bit up in the air at the moment. They were about to start filming, um, I think, last month. But um, one of the lead characters, Naya Rivera, passed away very suddenly um, and tragically. So that's a little bit on the back burner for the moment, also because of, you know, the global pandemic and overall civil strife. Um, So that's coming at some point. I've been working on a Netflix TV series called Jupiter's Legacy for the past couple months, and I will be continuing that into the fall. And it's been it's been amazing working on that. I jumped into it right um, right at the beginning of March. So I left Harry like March 1st and then just kind of jumped into that, which was which was great. Um, And yeah, it's super fun. I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, about. It's just a superhero story, but it's an independent superhero uh, comic, and Netflix bought all of that intellectual property. So it's there's a huge amount of content there, which is awesome. But it's an epic kind of tale, like tons of characters, and it's hopping back and forth between present day and past, and that there's you know some characters that have like this metal grunge thing, which I got to write, which was fun. And then there's obviously some stuff that reflects a little bit like the 20s and 30s. And then they go to Morocco. So it's like there's regional elements. And it's just been really fun to kind of just like write this big main theme for um, one of the characters and like the union and that superhero thing and sort of put it through this this whole like kaleidoscope of, of styles and, and things. So that's been a challenge, but it's been super fun, and the show is very score-heavy, and the showrunner and the producers are so fantastic and so awesome and have have been so receptive to some of my ideas, even though they weren't, like, kind of what they were envisioning from the start. 
And I got to do a bunch of weird vocal stuff, which is super fun. And I'm going to write like a big chorale for one of the pinnacle moments in the series. So just sort of teasing these little seeds along the way um, in a like more deconstructed way, an experimental way, and then sort of bringing it together to make it like a whole sort of statement towards the end, which I'm looking forward to doing. And I got to work with my favorite performer, producer ever, Ari Mason, who is one of my oldest friends. She's the best vocalist I've ever met in my life, like can do pretty much anything you can imagine and an incredible improviser, producer and composer in her own right. And I have her sing on everything I do. So it's <laughs> it's always really nice working with her. Um, and my fiance, who is also a composer and guitarist, who's been playing a bunch of guitar on that. So that's great. And yeah, in addition to Jupiter's Legacy, I've been, you mentioned this in the beginning, in the beginning spiel, but I have written for this new Disney Plus documentary so series called Marvel 616. And I scored their first episode last year, probably almost a year ago, like last August, maybe last September. Um, and that was directed by Gillian Jacobs. And it's all about the history of women behind Marvel. So this very incredible episode just all about highlighting these women who you may not have known have been behind these narratives. And I actually just composed another episode for them, which is a completely different story. It's about this high school in Brandon, Florida, who puts on Marvel plays in their drama class. So two totally different kind of approaches for for that score. And I actually co-composed that episode with, with John, John Monroe. So that was fun. I got to write some really wholesome music for that episode, which is, you know, a rarity, I feel like. Um, it's, yeah, it's nice not to be able to, not to have to write like a tension cue with some synth pulses. So that was, that was fun. And, you know, wall-to-wall music and it was, it was just a really nice experience. And we got that done, I think, in like three weeks. So it was, it was quick and fleeting, but it was, it was very, very enjoyable. So I think that's supposed to be coming out in Disney Plus in the fall. Mm -hmm. And obviously Mulan, which I worked on with Harry for a couple of years. Um, so I was fortunate enough to write additional music for that. And that was a long, long haul, long journey on that film. But I'm so glad that it's finally going to be unveiled to the world on September 4th, I believe, on Disney+. Plus. So that was a big... That was a big one, and I'm so excited for everyone to hear Harry's score and just these these new themes and, and all the fun stuff that we got to do. Amazing. Well, Steph, thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks, Matt. This was so fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.